Well, it is our joy and privilege to be back again this morning in the wonderful letter to the Colossians. If you would take your Bible, open with me to Colossians chapter 3. You're probably well aware, if you have kids, that getting ready for church on Sunday mornings can sometimes be the most stressful part of the entire week. Families frantically rush around the house, trying to make sure that all the kids have eaten breakfast and then brushed their teeth and combed their hair, that their shoes are matching. Often tensions rise between family members as the chaos rises in the home. I'm sure that if I were to ask you, especially if you're a mom, what are, what are some of the things that have to happen in order for your family to make it to church on time, you could immediately give me a list of at least 10 things that have to happen, maybe even in the right order for you to even make it to church, let alone be on time. And while, of course, it's obviously important that we prepare our physical bodies to be here, it's also important that we prepare our heart and mind for church. Let me ask you, how often and how much time do you devote to preparing yourself mentally, spiritually for church? I think we often miss the fact that God has a role for each of us to play every Sunday morning when we come to church. And I'm not talking primarily about officially being on a service team, although that is important and I would encourage you to join the church and be on a service team. But I'm talking about some fundamental, uh, crucial ways that are essential for us to serve one another every single Sunday morning as a corporate body. And you may not realize this, but one of the primary ways that we edify one another every Sunday morning is through corporate singing, what we just finished doing. The Bible teaches that proactively involving yourself in the wholehearted singing of doctrinally rich music is one of the most basic and fundamental ways that God intends for you to serve the other members of the church. In our text today, the Apostle Paul is going to explain that when we're filled with the truth of Scripture, it will compel us to edify the church and glorify God through the singing of biblical truth. Now, while that might initially sound surprising to you, it's my prayer that by the time we're done with our text this morning, that we will all think differently and have a greater appreciation for singing in the local church. But before we dive into our verse this morning, let me just quickly give you the overview of where we've been in case you are new and haven't been with us on this journey through Colossians chapter 3. Here's the basic structure of the verses we've been looking at in verses 1 to 17. There are two sections. The Christian perspective is in verses 1 to 4, and the Christian life is in verses 5 to 17. And that's where we've been for some time now. In the Christian life, essentially what Paul has said is two things. We're to mortify sin, that is put sin to death, and to pursue righteousness, In fact, he's given us this process for spiritual change that we've looked at over and over again now. I hope it's burned in our minds, this three-step process of putting off sin, renewing our mind with truth, and putting on righteousness. Let's look at it together in Colossians chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 12, and we'll read down through verse 17. It says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, 
Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We've been developing this simple theme throughout these 17 verses that every Christian must proactively put sin to death and pursue righteousness. That really is the Christian life. We are, in our sanctification, putting sin to death and pursuing righteousness. As you see there on the screen, Paul gives us these three descriptions of who we are in Christ. We are chosen by God, beloved of God. We're holy, set apart unto the Lord, and that should motivate us then to fulfill the commands that Paul gives us in this letter. He tells us to put on righteousness, and he gives us these five virtues that we're to put on as Christians towards one another. We're to put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and the fruit of that will have results in our church corporately. Paul's been talking for the last several weeks about how the church should respond to one another, He says a church that puts on these virtues will be a church that bears with one another and that forgives one another. Then he gave us the essential virtue of love that really ties the whole thing together. Now last week we began a new section of this portion of Paul's letter and we began looking at four fundamental commitments for every believer. There are four commitments that we must commit ourselves to individually, but also as a body. Remember, he's speaking to us collectively. The first two of those commitments we saw last week in verse 15. Commitment number one is to be controlled by peace. We're to let the peace of Christ rule within our hearts, Paul said. And commitment number two is to be committed to gratitude. We are to be a people characterized by giving thanks to our Lord and Savior. Now, that brings us to a third commitment this morning where we'll focus our attention. Here is the commitment. Commitment number three, be filled with Scripture. Be filled with Scripture. Look back at our text. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word of Christ might refer to the words that Jesus himself spoke or the words that were written about him, but really we have the sum total of the words of Christ contained in the scripture. Remember that Paul tells us that all scripture is inspired by God in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we have in the scriptures then the words of Christ. 
So keep in mind that for the Christians originally receiving this letter, they didn't have the full New Testament yet. It was still being written. They may have had portions of letters. Obviously, they had this letter from Paul. They may have had portions of the Old Testament, but it was expensive and difficult to have copies, certainly at the personal level. Maybe each church might have a copy, but not every individual. But we... Have the full counsel of God. It's sitting in your lap. You probably have multiple copies at home and on your phone and on your iPad. And so we as God's people today should have even greater appreciation for the words of Christ because we have the full counsel of God in the scriptures. And this is Paul's command. He says, let it dwell. That's the command. Let the scriptures, the word of God, the words of Christ, let it dwell. Now that word dwell is a present active imperative. We've talked about this before, but in the present tense, the idea is a continual action. He's saying as a pattern of life, every Christian should have the word of Christ richly dwelling within them actively. The word dwell means to live or to make a home within. So we could say, let the word of Christ live within you or let it make its home within you. In order to emphasize just how emphatic he's being here, he adds the word richly, which could also be abundantly. Let it dwell within you richly, continually, daily, as a a pattern and habit of life. Now, when we talk about the word of Christ dwelling within us richly, obviously we're not talking about just a verse here or there. We're talking about huge portions of the scripture hidden in our hearts that are part of our meditation on a daily basis to where the the words of Christ are dwelling within us abundantly in an ongoing fashion. Understand that when the truth of scripture is living in you or dwelling in you, that has an immediate impact on your life, on the way you live and think. Suddenly, it means that everything you encounter in your day is brought back to the scriptures. The first reflex for us is what does the Bible say? Every news article, every disruption in the day, every sin, every joy, every trial is brought back to the scriptures when the words of Christ are dwelling richly within us. When the words of Christ are dwelling within us, we're eager to share the gospel with unbelievers. We're eager to edify one another in the truth, in discipleship. It governs our actions, our reactions, our plans, our goals. Everything is affected when we obey the command for the scriptures to be richly and abundantly dwelling within us. Now, I recognize this Sunday is Mother's Day. And I could have perhaps chosen a passage that was more directly pointed at that subject. But the truth is, moms, I couldn't think of a better truth to give you than this. Let the words of Christ richly dwell within you. Do you want to be a godly mother? Know the scriptures. Love the scriptures. Live the scriptures. If you're a mother, then you're already... Covering that part, now you just need the godly part. If you want to be a godly mother, live out the truth. Really, it is that simple. There is no secret book, no secret formula. Know the Lord Jesus Christ. Know him in his word and follow what it says. But there's more to this concept of letting the words of Christ richly dwell within us. Because remember that when Paul writes Colossians, he's sitting in a prison cell... 
He can't physically get to the churches to visit them, so he begins to write these letters. And we know that he wrote other letters at the same time. One of those we've been looking at because there's so many parallels between this letter and the book to the Ephesians. So I, I want you to see that there is a particular passage in the letter to the Ephesians written roughly at the same time uh, that, that correlates with the passage here and it helps us understand more of what Paul is teaching. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 18 through verse 20. Ephesians 5 beginning in verse 18 it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now notice the command in verse 18 in Ephesians 5. It is to be filled with the Spirit. That's an imperative there. Be filled with the Spirit. Obviously, by the Spirit, he means the Holy Spirit. He's commanding that we as Christians live under the dominating influence of the Spirit. And he makes a comparison here with a person that's under the influence of alcohol. He says, just as a person who is drunk comes under the influence of that alcohol and acts in accordance with that drunkenness, the Christian is to come under the influence not of alcohol, but of the Spirit and live in conjunction and accordingly with the Holy Spirit. By the way, he's not equating the effects of being drunk with the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a, a misunderstanding that some in different branches of the charismatic movement have taught. There's nothing in the scripture that talks about being drunk in the Spirit. What he's saying is just as you come under the influence of that alcohol and it affects you, when you have the Holy Spirit living in you, it should affect you. He becomes the dominating influence in your life. But here's the, the interesting thing. Notice that the effects that Paul describes in Ephesians 5 of being filled with the Spirit are the exact same effects in Colossians 3 of letting the Word richly dwell within you. Look back at Ephesians. What are the effects of being filled with the Spirit? Verse 19. Here's what will happen when you're filled with the Spirit. You'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now notice the striking similarities. And, and here's the significance. The command to be filled with the Spirit and the command to be filled or, or to have the Word of Christ dwelling within you are connected. You see, the command to be filled with the Spirit is a passive command. That means it's got to happen to you. You cannot fill yourself with the Spirit. The Spirit has to fill you. But the command in Colossians to let the word of Christ dwell within us is an active command. That means we're to pursue it. Here's how this goes together. The Spirit of God works within us through the means of the word of God. And so as we fill our minds with the truth of Scripture, the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with that truth to sanctify us. That's what Paul is saying. The two go together. Now we know in the scriptures that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as described in 1 Corinthians 12 and other places, is a one-time event. 
that happens at salvation. If you're a Christian, you are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. There's no second baptism of the Holy Spirit. But we are daily to be filled with the Holy Spirit as we continue to fill our minds with the truth, meditate on the truth, and apply the truth. You see the correlation. So many Christians are stifling the work of the Spirit in their lives because they refuse to discipline themselves to dwell intentionally and continually on the truths of Scripture. Just as God does the work of salvation through the means of the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit does the work of sanctification through the means of the Word of God. And so many Christians are sadly deceived into substituting mystical and emotional experiences for the disciplined study and meditation of the Scriptures. But remember back in chapter 2 of Colossians, leading into chapter 3, Paul warned us that mystical experiences are not the key to sanctification, that we can never depend upon those things to sanctify us. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. He says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Paul is saying don't let anyone tell you that you're disqualified because you don't have these visions and mystical experiences. He says those people are not holding fast to the head who is Christ. So we have to resist the ever-growing pressure in Christianity today to look for God to speak to us through visions and impressions and dreams instead of committing ourselves to the fundamental basics of the Christian life which are found in following the scriptures to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. If you want to grow in Christ, study the Bible, meditate upon the Bible, and apply it to your life. The Spirit of God is working in the life of every Christian in conjunction with the Word. Only then will we really grow in Christ's likeness. Now at this point you may be thinking, well that's great and all, but how in the world does that tie into congregational singing? Well, we're going to get there in just a moment, but we get our first clue here at the end of verse or this phrase in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That word you is not singular, it's plural. That is, in you collectively, as a group, as a church. Let the word of Christ be dwelling, living at home in North Lake Bible Church as a body. We could apply it that way. Collectively. Now, if that's to happen... Each of us individually have to be filling our minds with the truth. But the idea here is that if we do that individually as a church, it has a collective effect on us as one body. There's a corporate result of letting the words of Christ richly dwell within us. What is that corporate result? Well, understand, Paul's going to give us one corporate result, one church-wide result, but it's not the only result, but it is the one that he's going to focus on here. But before he gets to it, he gives us this modifying statement. Look back at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you 
with all wisdom. With all wisdom. Now, just for a moment, I have to explain this word wisdom because the Greek word for wisdom means something different than what we often think about when we use the word in English. We usually or often use the word wisdom almost as a substitute for words like knowledge or insight. But biblically, wisdom implies something more than just knowledge. Biblical wisdom includes knowing biblical truth and living it out. The wise person in the scriptures is the one who not only knows what to do, but does it. In the Proverbs, notice the balance, the discrepancy between the wise man and the fool. What's the difference? The wise man follows after obediently to the truth. He knows the truth and he walks in the truth. That's the idea here. Here's a definition of the word. It's the capacity to understand and function accordingly. To know the truth and to function in accordance with the truth. That's what wisdom is. So Paul is saying as we apply this this living or indwelling of the word of God in this corporate result, we're to do it with wisdom. That is, we're to be a people who not only know what the Bible says, but who are actively seeking to live out what the Bible says. Now, he modifies this command with three participles. If you haven't been to English class in a while, think of it basically as this. A participle is an ing word. Usually, that's how it translates into English. There are three ing words here, teaching, admonishing, and singing. When we let the words of Christ richly dwell within us as a body, it's going to have a corporate result. And Paul explains it through these three words. Now, I have to tell you, as we dive into this this morning, commentators are split in their opinions on exactly how these three words relate to one another. There are a couple of options of what Paul could be saying. But I'm convinced, after studying this in depth this week, that just by looking at the Greek text, which I've done extensively this week, and then applying this also, or comparing it with Ephesians 5, the parallel passage, the meaning becomes really, really clear. So I'm going to give you the fruit of that study this morning. What is Paul saying with these words, teaching, admonishing, and singing? Well, first of all, looking at verse 16, notice that teaching and admonishing form a unit. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing. He adds the word and there to tie the two together. He also says, one another. Again, this is a corporate result. This is something that's to be happening in the local church gathering. Teaching and admonishing are two sides of the same coin. They both refer to different kinds of instruction. So we we could lump them together and say, instructing one another. But he broadens it to tell us the two different kinds of instruction. Teaching is what we normally think about with instruction. It's imparting information. Telling you something that you didn't previously know. Admonishing is different. This is admonishing. It's to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. To admonish, to warn, to instruct. Admonishing is is calling someone back. They're not walking in wisdom. And they need to be called back to walk within wisdom. Paul says both of these go together. Both of these kinds of instruction. This is the corporate result of a church where the word of Christ is dwelling within them. 
Now, when we hear that, we may initially think of teaching in a class-like setting, that Paul is saying, okay, when the word of Christ richly dwells within you, there's going to be a lot of teaching. Now, that is true. We see in Acts chapter 2, immediately, the, the new believers were gathered together around the teaching of the apostles. That's what we're doing this morning by opening up the teaching of the apostles in the word of God. That is to be a fundamental part of the local church. We're also to teach each other in the sense of discipleship. Jesus said to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded. So we are to teach in the local church, but that's not what Paul means here in this context. He doesn't mean teaching in the sense of giving a class or or even teaching from the pulpit as I'm doing right now. He has one specific method of teaching in mind. And you may have guessed, it's corporate singing. Corporate singing is the means or the method that Paul has in mind here. Now, this may be a surprise to you, but as we get into this, it's actually very encouraging and I hope will be transformative for us in our worship through music. Look back at what Paul says. He says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing. Remember, as we said before, that every word of Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God himself. And sometimes the meaning of a passage comes down to just the little bitty words. In this case, the word and is very, very helpful. As I mentioned, he said teaching and admonishing. He ties those together with that little bitty word and or chi in the Greek text. But he doesn't use the word and when he gets to the third ing word for singing. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? What it means is he's lumping the first two together, teaching and admonishing, and the third word, singing, is modifying or describing how we teach and admonish, and it's through singing. A careful look at the Greek text helps us to see this, but it becomes really clear when we just read again the parallel passage from Ephesians chapter 5. Look back at Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 20. He says, We're to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. In both Colossians and Ephesians, Paul's point is the same. When a congregation is filled with the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God, The corporate result is instructing one another through doctrinally sound singing. Now, I understand this may be a new concept, but let's look at these three particular words that Paul uses to describe the kind of singing, the kind of songs that we ought to be singing in the church. And it's going to help us understand how important this really is. He gives us the same three types of songs in Ephesians 5 and in in Colossians 3. It's the only place in Scripture, these two texts, where these three words are listed in this way. They are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, I have to admit that there are times in Scripture where some of these words are used interchangeably. Sometimes it'll refer to a psalm as a hymn and vice versa. But the way Paul lists them here, it's clear that he intends for us to think of of a nuance of difference between each of these types of songs. Let's look at them 
in order. First of all, he uses the word psalms. We are to teach and admonish one another through the singing of psalms. Now, a psalm is literally a song accompanied by a stringed instrument, which is why I play guitar. It's biblical, right? Not really. And you might guess that this is the most common word used for the psalms of the Old Testament. And and likely in context, that's what Paul means. He means for us to think of the Old Testament psalms. We're to to teach and admonish one another through the, the Old Testament psalms, which actually we did this morning with Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call. It's taken right from Psalms 42 and 43. We obviously don't have the tunes that go with the psalms anymore, but we can sing those concepts uh, with new tunes. Secondly, he says hymns. We're to sing hymns. Now, when you hear that, you have to strip away the, the definition we think of when we think of a hymn. He's not talking about a hymn as we would define it. A hymn was simply a song with religious content, especially in honor of a deity. A religious song sung to God. Alan Ross says it this way. He says, a hymn was more formal, loftier, and more universal in scope, that is, than a spiritual song, the third category, focusing on one or more of the divine attributes and not on our personal experiences. So the hymns are songs sung directly to God. They're theological truths about God that we sing to him and about him. There are some places in the New Testament that many scholars believe are examples of some of these early hymns in the early church. One of them actually comes in Colossians. We studied it in chapter 1. It's possible that this was part of a hymn that would be sung in the early churches. Let me read it to you. Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, were there things on earth or things in heaven. Now, if, if it's true that this is an example of a hymn from the early church, then you can see how clearly focused it is on theology, on the theology of of God himself, of God the Son and God the Father. It's uplifting who the Son is and what he's accomplished and what the Father has done in conjunction with the Son. It's interesting, we have an example in the New Testament when Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into prison in Philippi. It says that about midnight that night, while they're shackled in this prison, still sore from their wounds, Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns, same word, of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Always love that scene of what it must have been like, these other prisoners hearing these men beaten, shackled, and yet they're singing the praises of God at midnight. Those are hymns. But thirdly, we have another category that Paul calls spiritual songs. 
spiritual songs. Now, these are songs that could be either secular or sacred. It's a more general term for song. That's why Paul adds the word spiritual song to make it clear that he doesn't mean a secular song. He means a song that is written to God. But these were new songs that were being written by the the Christians there in the early church. Some have suggested that while the hymns focused on theological truths about God, these spiritual songs may have been songs of praise recounting things that God has done for us. Alan Ross puts it this way, there are new, these are new songs that set forth the believer's spiritual enjoyment of life under God. This word for song is actually used in the book of Revelation when the angels sing a song in response to Jesus taking the scroll from God the Father, Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song. This is the same word, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Notice how that song speaks of what Christ has done, but what he's done for us. The glory is still given to Christ, but speaking of realities that he's purchased for believers. Now, as we put all of this together, I need you to step back and just put yourself in the shoes of the original audience. Picture yourself in this time period as one of the Colossians reading this letter or receiving this letter. And remember, as I said before, the New Testament is still being written They don't have the full canon yet in their hands, probably don't even have a full copy of the Old Testament, at least not as individuals. And so memorization would have been extremely important. And throughout human history, what's one of the fastest and most lasting ways to memorize something? Singing. Music. In fact, I would bet that almost all of you know your ABCs to a song. Right? It's one of the first songs we remember learning as a little kid. Some of you may know scripture passages to song and other historical facts put to song. Why do we do that? Why do we, even now we teach our children in our children's ministry verses put to song? Why? Because when we add a melody, for some reason, the way that God's made us, it sticks in our brain in a unique way. Music sticks. It stays with us. And so now we're starting to see the heart of what Paul means here when he says that a church that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the words of Christ, it will teach and admonish one another through singing. Clearly, these hymns were intended to be a means of memorizing and rehearsing biblical truth in a day and age when paper copies of the Scripture were scarce and hard to come by. And even in our day, though we have all these copies of the Scripture, if the Bible is really to dwell within us richly, it's going to have to be through meditation and memorization. The fact that we have such easy access to the Bible makes us more accountable to memorize, not less than the New Testament Christians in the early church. But I want you to notice that there are two common, uh, crucial commonalities that all three types of these songs share in common. First of all, they are rich in theology. Think about the Psalms. 
Think about the hymn that we read in Colossians 1. Think about the new song that we read in Revelation. All of them have this in common. They are rich in theological truth. They're deep, not shallow songs. Secondly, they are God-centered. They're God-centered. All three categories. The Psalms are centered on the person of God. The hymns of the New Testament are centered on the person of God. And even the new songs that we see an example of in Revelation are centered on God. Even when God's activity towards men is mentioned, it's mentioned as a way to glorify God, not the men to whom he has given certain gracious gifts. So what's the takeaway for us then as we apply this command to let the words of Christ dwell within us and to teach and admonish one another through singing? It means that we as a church must ensure that the songs we sing as a congregation follow these same principles. Our songs must be rich in theology and centered on God rather than man. You know, many people choose a church today based upon the music. And when we say that, what they mean is the style of the music. Is it upbeat? Does the lead singer sound like a professional? Are the musicians studio quality? Does it make me feel emotional or energized when I hear it and sing it? But based upon Paul's instruction here, our primary concern as a church should not be the style of the music, but the content of the music. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have personal preferences when it comes to style. Not at all. We all have personal preferences. I am saying it's not right for us to allow our personal preferences for style to entice us to choose songs that lack these qualities of being rich in theology and centered on the person of God. That's why our process here for choosing songs, the songs that we sing, begins with the lyrics, always. What are the words? I don't care how popular a song becomes in larger evangelicalism or how often they play it on the local Christian radio station. And by the way, let me just say, if you can sing a supposedly Christian song to your sweetheart and not commit heresy, it's not a Christian song. None of this, I love the way you hold me, you make me warm and fuzzy, hold my hand type of stuff. Listen, if the lyrics are shallow and man-centered, it has no place in congregational singing. We are here to worship and exalt our God. Why are we so concerned about this? It's because Paul says that singing corporately is a corporate means by which we teach and admonish one another with the Scriptures. What Paul is saying very practically is that when you stand here and sing and you stand shoulder to shoulder with people all around you and you hear them singing out to God theologically rich music, you are taught and instructed and edified and they are edified by hearing you sing these truths. Every time we sing, it's as if we're calling each other to believe these things and to walk in these things. Let me show you an example just from this morning of how songs can teach and admonish us. These are from what we sang this morning. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, soul though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. How about another example? Should my life be torn from me, 
every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God, be then my treasure. Be my vision in the night. Be my hope and refuge till my faith is turned to sight. Lord, my heart will praise you. Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. My help, my rock, I will praise him. Sing, oh, sing through the raging storm. You're still my God, my salvation. You see how these lyrics, if we take them to heart as we're singing, they teach us, they admonish us. These are truths pulled right out of the scriptures to remind us of our God and who he is and that we should trust him. But not only is our singing on Sunday mornings directed at one another, it's also, of course, directed to God himself. Look at verse 16 again. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Corporate singing is to flow out of hearts filled with God-centered thanksgiving. God is the ultimate audience to whom we sing. This is what makes Christian worship unique. You understand, all people in, in every culture like music. Every culture has its own kind of music that they like, but universally, people like music. People sing. Unbelievers sing all the time. But when Christians sing together, we sing to God, the true God. He's the object of our song because he's the object of our affection. And as we studied last week, gratitude is a basic disposition that should describe every single Christian. The natural result of a Christian filled with gratitude is worship through song. When we're happy, we sing. When we're sad, we sing. When life is difficult, we sing. When life is going well, we sing. Understand that what Paul is getting at here is that our singing is to be from the heart. He says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is, a heart overflowing with thankfulness to God. It should affect the way we sing, the fervency with which we sing. Sing with your heart to God. See, when we gather as a body, we have something to sing about. We serve the one true God of the universe. We've been redeemed by the blood of his Son. And now, even today, he's working within us as his people through the word, by his spirit, to sanctify us, to make us continually more and more like his son. And the Bible says for Christians, he's working together all of our circumstances for spiritual good and for his glory. If you're a Christian, you have something to sing about. And you may say, well, you don't understand. I don't have a great voice. And to that I say, that may be very well true but you have a great Savior, and he's worthy of the praise that is due his name. Most years, a group from our sending church at Countryside Bible Church sends out a group of men to the Shepherds Conference at Grace Church in California. And that group of men has grown over the years to be somewhere around 30 men. We come together in fellowship. It's a great time to be with those men. I remember a couple of years ago, I was... I was sitting there next to a dear brother whom I love, who's very special to me, from Countryside, and we were talking as the service began, 
and they called us to worship. It was time to stand and sing. And it hadn't dawned on me yet, but I had never actually stood next to this particular brother before during corporate worship. And as he began to sing, I quickly realized that though God had blessed him in many, many spectacular ways, singing was not one of those. He boldly attempted to sing with all his might, but he was not only off key. Honestly, I'm not sure he was in a key. It sounded much more like groaning than singing. At first, I was distracted. I was taken off guard, and I I thought to myself, how in the world am I going to focus on singing standing next to this brother? But soon as I began to think on that, my distraction turned to conviction because I realized that he was not unaware of the fact that he didn't have a good singing voice. He was simply determined to worship his Savior because he's worthy of the praise. Brothers and sisters, I would challenge us to think differently about what goes on in our corporate worship here at North Lake Bible Church. I would call us to evaluate our singing. Evaluate your singing. While it's true that we are edified and encouraged through singing, Paul has reminded us that corporate worship is not to be a selfish endeavor. We don't come here for us primarily. I challenge you this morning to think about the way you sing. First of all, I want to know, do you sing with your heart, with a heart full of gratitude overflowing to the Lord? Do you sing with your mind fully engaged, processing the words that we're singing, thinking on the truths and what they mean? Do you recognize that your singing is intended, obviously, to glorify God, but also to edify the people around you? as they hear you declaring these truths with a full heart that obviously affirms them, it encourages them to sing with their full heart to the Lord. Paul says that when we as individuals are committed to having the word of Christ richly dwell within us, we will be a church who corporately sings for the glory of God and for the edification of one another with a heart full of thanksgiving. It should affect not only the content of our singing, but the fervency with which we sing. Evaluate your singing this morning. Secondly, evaluate your relationship with Scripture. Does the Word of Christ live in you abundantly? Is your mind in a constant state of renewal because you're daily and regularly meditating upon the Scriptures? When you encounter questions and difficulties and joys and trials in life, Do you have the reflex of asking first, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about how I should respond? Are your conversations seasoned with Scripture? I want you to think about it this way. If if persecution broke out in our country and they took from us every copy of the Scriptures, you had no written copy of the Bible or electronic copy of the Bible, how much Scripture would you have stored away to meditate on? Or would your meditation dry up and cease? Maybe you're here this morning and the truth is Paul's instruction to love the scriptures and to sing with your full heart just seem really odd to you. Maybe you've never really understood the need for reading the Bible or joining in singing and always found it odd when others did. Friend, if that's you this morning, I would just lovingly ask you to evaluate your own heart. Do you really love the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Because the Bible says that when we truly love Christ, we will love His Word. And we will love His people. We will love to worship. And when you understand what Christ has done for you, and songs are put before you to sing that magnify the grace that we've received in Christ, your heart will resonate with those truths and desire to join in. If you have no place in your heart for the Scriptures, you have no desire to sing the truth, have you really come to understand your need for Christ? You understand that there's no way to be right with the Father except through the Son. That Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. That he willingly went to the cross and was crucified on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe in him. And we know that's true because he rose from the dead. He's alive today validating all that he said and taught and validating who he was. The Bible says if you'll repent of your sins, if you'll turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation, then you will be saved. And one of the very first things that happens when God transforms you is a love for his truth and a love for his people that overflows into a love for singing rich music. Believers of North Lake Bible Church, it's my prayer that we never take for granted the gift that God has given us in the church of doctrinally sound truth to sing. May we commit ourselves to sing with full hearts of gratitude for the edification of one another and for the glory of God. And may we be a people, individually and corporately, of whom it could be said that the words of Christ dwell abundantly within us. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we think through those truths that we've just heard, I pray that you would use it to transform the way we think about what happens when we come together to sing as a body of believers. Thank you for the truths of Scripture that so perfectly convict us. God, so many times we, we admit that we come to church and it's, it's just something that we do. It's just part of the weekly routine. And we don't give the thought to it that we should. God, this is a special time set aside to give the glory to your name that it's due to serve and edify one another, to grow in our love and appreciation for you. And God, I pray that we would take it seriously. And God, help us to love your word as the scripture tells us we should. God, if there's a, a coldness in our hearts, a, a laziness, a lack of discipline, God, help us to see it, to confess it, and by the power of your spirit to walk in a new way towards the scriptures, to delight in the word, to see it as a, a rich treasure, to see it as sweeter than honey. God, help us to mine out the depths of the truth of scripture on a daily basis and use that by the power of your spirit to help us to walk in accordance with it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.